Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me in transit, I suppose, in Chicago this week is Brian Gottlieb. And we have our top tens from Throne of Eldraine. Well, kind of, right? Like, we think we have our top tens from Throne of Eldraine. A little bit of a disclaimer on this episode. In the interest of getting it out in the most timely fashion possible, we waited as long as we possibly could. We were hoping we would have 100% of the spoiler as we did this. We're a few cards short right now, about 40 cards or so, right, Jerry? We're recording this Thursday afternoon-ish right now, so we're just waiting on those final few cards as it stands. Yeah, uh, according to Mythic Spoiler, we are at 223 out of 269, so this is not counting the Brawl stuff, and I don't know how the basic lands function in any of this, but we have most of it. And normally, any normal preview season, I would guess that we've seen like all the constructed shots. Uh, obviously, there's going to be some role playery stuff that shows up every now and again. But this preview season was also a little weird, where we had like a week and a half to two weeks where these cards were coming out, and people were like making content on decks that were playable after rotation, and you would look at stuff like Gruel where your mana base would be four stomping ground, 12 forest and eight mountains. And you're just like, what the hell? This is just not fun. Right. And then Mark Rosewater came out and said, there is no cycle of dual lands in this set, which basically told people like, Hey, your mana is going to suck. And I don't know. I thought we had kind of moved past that. I, th- I thought that Watsy had realized that just like not supporting color pairs and, basically putting a stop to allowing people to do just whatever they want to do is a bad idea. And then pretty late, we got Fabled Passage, which is this really powerful Evolving Wilds that kind of fixes all of our mana base woes. And I just wonder why this wasn't previewed immediately. Timing's a little weird. I'm with you there. And could have done a lot to blunt all these fears. And I don't know that it's like, I think it's not the sexiest of cards, right? Like it's a very, very good card, a very meaningful card, maybe even like the most important print in the entire set, you can argue, but it's not the one that has people absolutely flipping out. So I I don't know that there's a huge amount of value in saving it for the back end. And it's weird. I mean, anytime you're dealing with incomplete information, there's going to be some flaws in your deck building process and your evaluation process. And even right now, you know, you and I, as we do these top 10 lists, Maybe we're missing a huge piece. It's totally possible we come back next week and we're like, wait a second, we had this all wrong. Always Um, happens. Yeah. So I I think that I I get the complaint, but ultimately there's no perfect way to do this, no matter which order you release these cards in. You know, to your point too, we also had very early on in the season, we knew there were food tokens before we had any idea what food tokens did. And it's like, is that a positive way to spoil cards? Does it generate more conversation? I don't know the answer to that, I'll be honest. And it's just one approach. Ultimately, we're going to get all the cards in front of us at some point and figure out all the context. But you're right. We had some flawed assumptions about what mana bases would look like throughout this entire preview process. Well, in the case of food and with how much social media matters these days, I do think that there is some merit to just being like, yeah, Oko makes a food. What the hell does that mean? Make everyone talk about it. Right. And then, you know, maybe you're... Uh, hashtag MTG ELD gets trending on Twitter or something, right? Mm -hmm. But in the case of the mana base stuff, preview season is supposed to generate hype for the set and get people talking about it and get people excited. And when you start 
building decks around the new cards and you're like, well, I can't play this two color allied color combination because my man is just rancid. Like that just kills excitement. Right. And then people go on Twitter, they complain about it, how stupid it's going to be, blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, Oh yeah, never mind. Like the, the card was here the entire time that kind of fixed all our problems. Well, why didn't that just come out immediately? You know, man, people are going to complain no matter what. <laughs> if there's one thing, this particular preview so, season has emphasized. It's exactly that point. Listen, yes, absolutely. People are going to complain no matter what. However, you can do things like this that are trying to mitigate it kind of obvious. And yeah, you can play around it a little bit. I mean, granted, this this is not a situation that's come up in a while. So I understand why maybe people didn't think about it. But if I don't know, if you care about the content that people make during preview season, which I assume they do, like just think about in what order people are going to kind of like build decks with the cards that you have previewed, right? And if it's just like, oh, these all of these decks are missing a key piece, which is mana, which is arguably the most important piece, then what are they supposed to do? Obviously, they're just going to be like, I don't want to play with 20 basic lands in my two-color deck. This is stupid. It seems like you'd find some very simple heuristics to simplify it. You could just have foundational pieces, right? Like engine yeah. cards, and then you fill in the engine around it. Like, oh, here are the payoffs for this. Here are the payoffs for that. Mana bases, you build those first and go in that direction. But when you're trying to also spoil a story and trying to keep certain pieces in order, like I'm assuming there's so many masters to serve in this spot as you're of trying course. to figure out your exact order of preview cards. And maybe it's something like, you wanted to give this preview card to a certain person, but they couldn't do it until this time. There's so, so many factors that like, ultimately this seems like pretty small potatoes. I get the frustration, but these cards are here now. We have them. There was always going to be something left out along the way. And your argument that this is a silly thing to leave out is a good one, but we got it now. I mean, take take what we have and, and run with it. So I'm not upset because... I didn't have to like join a tournament with a terrible mana base or whatever. Right. Sure. Um, Also, I think you and I have gotten to the point where we know this type of stuff will happen. And when I'm building decks at this stage, I am very much aware, like these are almost completely meaningless. They're just to sketch out some ideas that'll really give me a head start when we get to the final stage. I don't expect any of this to stick at this point. Right. I I agree with that completely. For us, it's like, you know, we're going to do our job. We're going to make content in the weeks leading up to it. And then it's like actually time to get to work when the full set is revealed and everything. But just in in the meantime, you know, we we just did not have access to this thing. And I think it really did kill a lot of excitement during preview season because you look at a lot of the content that got put out there and there's just constantly people – harping on like how bad the mana is. And I think that that just kills a lot of excitement for the set in general. And then the problem gets solved and it's not like people were like rejoicing in the streets or whatever. It was just like, okay, fine. I guess the man is there, but like the, the inertia behind like everyone already being down on the set is already happened, you know? Sure. Yeah. I I was actually pretty shocked at how many people were uh, vociferously complaining about, there the lack of dual lands in this set like that is a big sticking point for some people and i like experimenting with different mana setups i think they have to all always be reasonable like there's a baseline you have to achieve but i do like getting away from the paradigm of just like dual land dual land dual land dual land over and over and over and things do do feel a little 
different this go around. I do too, but it, it was literally like four stomping ground. It and, was unplayable. And 20 basics in my aggro deck, you know, like you don't want to yeah. play rugged prairie or evolving wilds. Like you, you just didn't have a lot of options. And the same could be said even for brawl and brawl was a thing that they rolled out with these three color commanders. Right. And it's just like the mana is not good. Mm-hmm. So if anything, Fabled Passage should have maybe been involved in that a little bit. You know? Sure, I could see that, putting them in the Brawl deck. A lot of value you tucked away there, because that is going to be a widely played card. Maybe the most played card. Likely. I mean, it, it's it's a dual land that basically goes in any two or three color setup that you have. So yep. uh, I, I do think it is quite powerful and quite good. I'm certainly happy it's there. It does fix all my problems. My... My deck building ability for this set and the standard format just feels completely rejuvenated since we saw this. And yep. I'm sure we'll talk about it some more in our top tens. But oh yeah, now that we have our complaining out of the way for how preview season was handled, you want to just get into this, start with some honorable mentions? Sure, let's do it. I've, I've been looking forward to this for a while. And, you know, since we did preface with some complaining, I should lay out I am pumped for this set. I have the deck building juices flowing. There's a lot of exciting cards here. A lot of stuff I can't wait to play with. A lot of stuff that looks fun to play with. Not only powerful stuff. There's powerful stuff in spades, but there's a lot of things I can't wait to try and make work, even if I know it's a little bit of a uh, futile endeavor. And there's a lot of different stuff, too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is this is not like Storm Breath Dragon, Rekindling Phoenix, nonsense. Right. This is, this, these are like actually kind of weird sideways strategies that I think are going to be viable and good. And that makes me very excited. And I think once again, we see them reaching back to all formats too, which has been a recurring trend as of late and one that I also appreciate. Okay. Uh, I mean, do you have anything for modern that is not on your top 10? I do. And if you were following me on Twitter, you might have already seen a post I made I am excited about the Blue Common land. And let me get the name of it. I'm, I'm blanking on it right now. I'll pull it up. Mystic Sanctuary. That's the one that it comes into play tapped unless you control three islands. And you get to put a instant or sorcery on the top of your library when it comes into play. So that is fetchable because it is island type. So your polluted deltas can go grab that. And you can put Terminus back on top of your library. You can do stuff with Deprive. Maybe even you can dust off the old counterbalances a little bit and see if you can make no. something work as far as that goes. Oh, I'm going to do it. Don't don't you tell me no when it comes to counterbalance. I'm absolutely going to do it. I, I think this card is cool. I think it's versatile. And I, I think, again, a lot of the upside of putting something on a land is that you aren't super punished for it. Now, requiring three islands is a lot more than requiring one islands, but it's still very doable, I think. And I, I thought this card was pretty cool. Yeah, for modern specifically, I mean, you, th- you think about some of the combo control decks like blue-red, uh, kind of blue moon, but with Through the Breach Emrakul. Sure. And you play against something like Jund and they're just stripping your hand. And this is a thing that you can fetch up, you know, at the end of their turn four or whatever to put Through the Breach back on top of your library and then cast yeah, it nice. on the next turn. And then also all the like as foretold living end restore balance ancestral vision whatever like this card is nice for those decks i think so i think this is a big pickup and very subtly powerful as it often is when you add abilities to lands yeah so witch's cottage didn't really excite me all that much uh mystic sanctuary is a good one though sure 
Okay. Uh, do we, we each have five honorable mentions? Is that correct? I think so. How do we do this so this doesn't just become a top 15? Because if we talk about these five cards, we've basically done that. So are these just ones quick hits? Let us, let us know the ones that just barely missed and not really go into depth. Yes. Okay. So okay. Uh, one, one of my honorable mentions is Drown in the Lock, UB Instant, Choose One, Counter Target Spell with CMC less than or equal to the number of cards in its controller's graveyard, or Destroy Target Creature with CMC less than or equal to the number of cards in its controller's graveyard. Versatile does exactly what you would want to do in some blue-black mid-ranger control shell. Maybe a little difficult to turn on in the early game, but late game, it's your best card. Uh, I am afraid of that card's conditionality. I'm not saying it's like a miss. I, I just am worried and need to see it in practice before I'm like, yes, I'm on board with this card. So uh, didn't quite make my list. Vantress Gargoyle solves all your problems. Yeah, that card's a nice one too. Another one that I was like, maybe this should be on my list somewhere. Didn't make it, but uh, I'm interested in see what we can do with that card. My first honorable mention, I wanted to talk about Realm Cloak Giant slash Cast Off. This is the... Basically, Wrath of God on a stick. It's a seven mana, seven, seven vigilance, but it's got adventure. Cast off three colorless, white, white, destroy all non-giant creatures. That's basically just a wrath. I, I don't think that misses really anything in the present format. And you're Bone attacking- Crusher Giant. Uh, Bone Crusher Giant's a good one. Yeah, that's definitely going to be a widely played card. So good pickup there. But still, I, I think you can deal with that problem later. And the payoff of having- your win condition stapled onto the card you want to play anyway does things like enable win conditionless control decks. You can bounce giant with the fairy to get multiple casts of cast off. I I think on the whole, the adventure cards are all super, super, super pushed. And I think people are sleeping on that to some extent. This is maybe like a little bit further down of my list of adventure cards, but still one that I think could have a home in the future and might enable these blue white control decks to function. Yeah, in, in a traditional standard format, I think this card would be incredible, but I feel like there's just too much weirdness going on with this set where mm. you're going to have to be dealing with like artifacts and all, just all these creatures that are like spells and bodies. So the aggro decks and mid-range decks have a, a lot of inherent card advantage and there's a lot of recursion and stuff like that. So two years ago, I would be super stoked for this card. Now I'm just like, well, if I ever want to build a blue-white control deck or whatever, I have the option, which is great, but I'm not seeing it. Yeah, so I sketched out a deck over in our Discord and I was talking with people about it and it was based around the giant cast-off engine and people were asking me what I thought about it. And I'm like, well, I like the general construction of this deck. I like the way it's built. I think it's very interesting, but it basically requires the format to be about creatures. And like you said, if you go back two to three years, standard was basically always about creatures and you were very comfortable setting yourself up in that fashion. But I agree with you. A lot of the cards here seem more versatile, more powerful than that. And I don't know that it's just going to be a wrath matters all that much. So that's why this is further down on my list uh, than it would have been if we go back a little bit. Yep. Uh, my honorable mention, Brazen Borrower, 1UU31 Flash Flying, uh, can only block creatures with flying. It is a fairy rogue. Rogue matters for Robber and the Rich. And also has an adventure of one you instant return target non-land permanent and opponent controls to its owner's hand. I have an article uh, that'll be up on Star City also probably the same day that this podcast is on Star City. So uh, talking about this card and all of its different applications, I think it is quite good. I think that 
the fact that the adventure creatures let you basically use your mana every turn as you see fit is just incredible. I'm going to have more to say about this card in the future, so I will save my piece for that point. I, I believe that. Uh, this is like the most honorable of honorable mentions where if I want to, you know, knock off my number 10 uh, for this card, that would be perfectly reasonable. Sure, and I'll say the same about my next honorable mention. It's uh, Emery, Lurker of the Lock. If this was a list of modern cards, like this is slam dunk, either number one or two, I am just not quite sure what to do with this in standard yet. That doesn't mean I don't believe in this card. I think it's an incredibly, incredibly powerful card. I do think there's a very good chance it finds a home in standard. It just wasn't as clear cut to me as its usage in modern, where it's going to be an absolute all-star and probably enable some new archetypes I'm going to get you hooked on this card in standard. Let's do it. I mean, I'm not a naysayer of this card whatsoever. And just like you were close with Brazen Borrower, I'm very close with Emery. I will not be surprised when this becomes a very meaningful standard card. It's too powerful not to, basically. It has a bunch of really scary words. Yeah, it really Cost does. less, mill yourself, play mm-hmm. things from your graveyard. Like, what the hell? Basically, the most broken things you could be doing in Magic. Yep. Uh, honorable mention for me, and this is one that very easily could have made my top 10. And again, like Realm Cloak Giant two years ago, certainly would have. Bone Crusher Giant, 2R, Creature Giant, 4-3, whenever this becomes the target of a spell. This deals two damage to that spell's controller, and it has an adventure of Stomp, 1R, instant. Damage can't be prevented this turn. Stomp deals two damage to any target. Between Bone Crusher Giant and Brazen Borrower, I think there are going to be a lot of games where you are attempting to mitigate the effectiveness of the adventure before they cast their creature on turn three. So what I mean by that is if you're playing against a red deck and they go, you know, mountain, mountain pass on turn two, you don't want to play a thing with two toughness. Right. Almost no upside. Yeah. And that is just going to be a thing that you're going to have to get used to. So things with three toughness that cost three mana or two mana, however you want to try and get around this card, like that is absolutely going to be a very important part of the format. And it's like, okay, then you take two damage or whatever. Not a big deal. But uh, the body is good on this. The adventure is great. Uh, It has an ability that punishes people for actually removing it under most circumstances, uh, Oath of Kaya is obviously the the big one where it's just like, you know, what am I doing with my life? But overall, not that bad. More to say about this card in the future once more. Like I said, I think all of these adventure cards are much better than people are giving them credit for right now. The flexibility, the mana efficiency, the just raw card advantage built into the card. I don't think we've properly unpacked that yet. And I think they're all going to be much better than we believe right now. One of the ones that just missed my list, I don't know how close this was because I have the sense that I want this card to be better than it actually is because I think it's very cool. It's Fae of Wishes. This is the one colorless, one blue, one four flying fairy wizard. One colorless, one blue, discard two cards, return Fae of Wishes to its owner's hand. And this has an adventure tacked on. It's granted one colorless, or excuse me, three colorless, one blue, sorcery, adventure. You may choose a non-creature card you own from outside the game, reveal it, and put it into your hand. This is an incredible late-game value engine that gets you everything you need out of your sideboard. It is 
glacially slow. It requires you to invest a lot of resources. The thing that really sells me on it is I think one four body can be quite meaningful. And there's a lot of decks that would have happily picked up one four flyer for two mana at various points. I know there was a point where certain decks were picking up sun cleanser just so they could play a one four for two mana. And so they would have effective blockers against the mono red deck. This is obviously much better than sun cleanser in most conditions. And I, I think this card is just good not great but it's a lot of fun it's incredible i'm going to build decks around it and i hope they pan out but it's a lot of time a lot of mana investment a lot of resource investment to make this card work we just have to see if there's enough payoffs for it yeah you no ew on this one this one is cool you my honorable mentions are playable magic cards i'm sorry this is very far from unplayable very far not saying it's great it's very far from unplayable Again, all the adventure cards come with so much value tacked onto them. That is true. That is definitely true. And I agree that this thing allows you to do some cool stuff. It's just all nonsense. It is nonsense, but it's my kind of nonsense. I kind of like that card as just like a discard engine. Yeah, I I think that's worth paying attention to as well. But I I also don't think that that is worth the, the price of mana and, you know, discarding an extra card and stuff like that, so... Yeah, a lot of resource investment, to be sure. My other two honorable mentions, I'm just going to skip right past because we've talked about them a lot, uh, are the Royal Scions and Rankle Master of Pranks. So two cards that I think are good are going to show up in kind of like fringe decks and you know scenarios, but aren't going to be all over the place, but both very good. And uh, I will be... Happy that these cards are around if I am playing the archetypes in which they fit into. Disagree with you on one of these cards. I think it's one of the best cards in the set. We'll get there when we get there. And I'll just hit you with my last two. Uh, Again, these are all super powerful cards. I'm a believer in each one I'm speaking about. It's Charming Prince and Questing Beast. Both these cards are great. Both I'm just looking for homes, looking to build around them. Probably more so Questing Beast than Charming Prince. I think Charming Prince does a better job playing off modern synergies, but the right prints come along and Prince will certainly shine here as well. But don't really see the home for it as it stands right now. And Questing Beast is just like, good card. It's it's, yeah, just, it's just like facially good. It's very obvious that it's a meaningful card and it's going to see play in decks that want a green beater. Yeah, it's it's a rate monster. Yeah. From my experience building decks so far, I haven't necessarily wanted this card, but I haven't gone too deep down the rabbit hole of just building like efficient mono green aggro or gruel aggro or whatever. So mm-hmm. I, I've mostly just been trying to break the various engines in the format. So sure. random, random rate monster beater. I haven't really gotten there yet. Makes sense. A lot of exciting things to mess around with here. Yeah. All right. You want to start on the top tens? Let's do it. Hit me with your number 10. My number 10 is Glass Casket. One dub artifact. When this enters the battlefield, exile target creature and opponent controls with CMC three or less until this leaves the battlefield. Not exciting, but we saw how much play Baffling End got last season. And I don't think that that is going to change all that much. And... If there was, like, a really good adventure creature that just, like, blew up artifacts and enchantments, I would be a lot more scared of, you know, just, like, the legendary enchantments and playing Glass Casket and stuff like that. But there's not, like, a whole lot of ways to actually punish this. 
Teferi is the one I fear a little bit. And like, that doesn't matter all that much because you just replay it, right? But the thing is that Teferi incentivizes you to already be playing creatures that have some kind of enters the battlefield ability or haste. So you're already pushed to playing a lot of things, which will get value from being released from the glass casket. But this card has been making the cut in most of my white decks. It is an important piece of removal. If we still had Baffling End, I probably prefer that over this, but we don't. And you can only work with what we have. I think this is some fine removal and we'll see unexciting play across many, many decks. Yes. So my number 10. And I I think this number 10 rating is more reflective of the excitement level for this card versus how meaningful it is. Because like I said, I think this is probably the most played card in the entire set. And maybe that means it should be number one. I don't know. We've never quite hashed that out. Uh, But it is Fabled Passage. Fabled Passage, of course, the land. Tap, sacrifice, Fabled Passage. Search your library for a basic land card. Put it onto the battlefield tapped. Then shuffle your library. Then if you control four or more lands, untap that land. This is just glue that holds all the mana bases together. Two-color, three-color decks would have a very difficult time existing without Fabled Passage. This is... This is what we're using for the time being. Get used to it. Get used to having to own four of these. I don't know if that makes this card super expensive or what, but very meaningful print. Somewhere better than Evolving Wilds, worse than Prismatic Vista. Very happy this was a late add to the set. Yeah, have you built a deck that is like two or more colors that does not contain this card yet? I I don't really know how you can. It doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. And, you know, so this is yesterday this was revealed. Is that right? Or was it the day before yesterday? It might have actually just been yesterday. Yeah. Time feels like it's very condensed right now. There's so many cards that are continually forcing me to upgrade everything I've been working on. But I think like I built a lot of decks yesterday morning and haven't been back to them since. And somehow that means I haven't done much with Fabled Passage yet. But I I'd certainly concede the point. This is what we have to build around in the future. Yeah. Uh, I was kind of the opposite where I was uh, flying home last night and I had an article that I had to do and uh, that card was a relatively new new ad and I think I built like 30 decks or something and it was just like, yeah, this, this card is nice. Yeah. Also, so no matter what, the land enters the battlefield tapped, right? And then you untap it, yeah. And then you untap it. Okay. That bodes well for amulet loving people i don't know if this is something we ever need but if there's a way you ever want a second color of basic in your deck you can think about this and you still get your tapped triggers with your amulets yeah not not about it you're never about anything amulet based i know that by now that's okay i'll hook you one day (laughs) i was one of the first people to write about amulet. i know i know and then you betrayed us that's fine i did i did well no one else wanted to work on the deck with me so right all right, my number nine, Acclaimed Contenda, 2-dub, 3-3, Human Knight. When this enters the battlefield, if you control another knight, look at the top five cards to your library. You may reveal a knight, aura, equipment, or legendary artifact card from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Not quite Militia Bugler. You do need another knight, but good God, this, this card is awesome. The conditionality of this card scared me off of it. And maybe that's short-sighted and maybe I just need to realize like three, three for three is pretty acceptable in a lot of situations. I was 
just scared of the spot where this is like the threat I'm supposed to be reloading with. And it's near blank cardboard in a lot of situations. So if things are going well, this certainly snowballs the game very aggressively. If you have had your threats answered, this is just a three, three for three, but it's got your relevant types. Maybe that's just good enough. I, I don't think I have a sense of what the Knights are yet. I haven't started building Knight-based decks. I haven't seen anyone show me a Knight-based deck where I'm like, ooh, yeah, I'm excited about this. So maybe that's affecting my opinion of this card, but did not make my list. Well, I thought that Knights needed a card on the list, and I thought that Acclaimed Contender would be the one that would be the most prevalent in all of the different deck lists. And this is certainly one where uh, this card got previewed and I was like, yeah, that that solves a lot of problems. And it's not like Militia Bugler where it's just like a little bit below rate and like can miss sometimes. And the Knights are telling you to maybe play with equipments and legendary artifacts and stuff like that. This, this card just kind of does it all. And even if they are killing all of your stuff, I don't think it's that difficult to just play one drop and this. That is true. Uh, this is just a great time for me to interject with my number nine card, so I may as well do so. It's the Circle of Loyalty. Like you said, knights deserve something on here. I went with the Legendary Artifact. Uh, I'll read it now. Four colorless, two white Legendary Artifact. The spell costs one less to cast. For each knight you control, creatures you control get plus one, plus one. Whenever you cast a Legendary spell, create a 2-2 two, two white knight creature token with Vigilance. And then three colorless, one white, tap, create a 2-2 white knight creature token with Vigilance. This particular anthem seems absolutely pushed. It does everything you would ever want in terms of adding more bodies to the battlefield, pumping up your team. There's cost reduction, and then it becomes a persistent source of threats in the late game. I have to think this is the focal point for knight's decks. Do you agree? I think this card is great. I think that Acclaim Contender is going to be a four of, and this will be like a two or a three of. I agree. And it is possible that there's like a more aggressive white-red version that is maybe doing stuff other than Circle of Loyalty, at least in huge numbers. So I just went with the card that I think was going to be played more overall. But yeah, obviously this, this card is super powerful. Yeah, I just think if knights are good enough, if they prove themselves to be meaningful, it's based around the staying power and the late game aspect that circle of loyalty provides because if i'm just looking for an aggressive deck i have a feeling there's better places to find it than an aggressive knight setup i think you're looking for something that floats a little bit more towards the middle when you get to this tribe and again i do think i'm missing some pieces when it comes to the knights and i want to know a little bit more about exactly what they're going to do so maybe i'll revise that opinion in the future but for now this is the knight card i am excited about yeah, I could see uh, some versions that play equipment instead of Circle of Loyalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, you know, Javier's card, the Fervent right. Champion. Sure. And, and and stuff like that. And like, that's how you get your staying power is just, you're, you're just like constantly attacking them with five fives, basically. And then, even then, maybe Circle of Loyalty is still in those decks. Who knows? But uh, Ember Cleave and like the plus two plus two equipment. And then there are a couple other equipments that might make it i don't know but yeah it's it's another one of those things where i need to actually sit down and build these decks and like focus on them a little bit but it's just like oh it's just it's just like a white weenie deck you know it's not that interesting and i just assume someone like tom ross will write an article you know right there's value in knowing what you're good at and letting other people take the reins sometimes i basically that's been my opinion on the night tribe as well i will wait and see what's out there 
Okay. Uh, so that, w- that was your nine? Yes. All right. My number eight is the card that I want to be number one. This card is number one in my heart. This card is everything. This is the Cauldron of Eternity. This is 10 BB Legendary Artifact. This spell costs two less to cast for each creature card in your graveyard. Whenever a creature you control dies, put it on the bottom of its owner's library. Not instead. So dies triggers still happen. 2B tap, pay two life, return target creature from your creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield. Activate this ability only anytime you can cast a sorcery. This card got my juices flowing. Well, we've done the Whip of Erebos thing before in the oh, past. Yeah. We know how powerful this effect can be. This is one of my near misses. Uh, I think a lot of times my top 10 lists shy away from engines until they're proven. And that can be tough. You know, sometimes you get to the end of the road and you have a very obvious engine and I end up missing it. Um, this is one I will say that seems like it checks all the boxes. It requires a lot of setup. And I think you can find ways to do it. As you mentioned, self-mill on Emery. Uh, there's plenty of other ways to stick cards in the bin in this set. So do you have setups you like yet? Are you already deck building with this card? Yeah, I, I, I built like four or five decks that I actually think are pretty legit. So what do you think about the vulnerability of this card as a permanent type? Like, to me, all these very expensive artifacts bring up fears of D-Spark. Now, obviously, we need to, need to get to a place where D-Spark is a card that's being played in the format, which haven't seen too much black-white floating around. But there's other answers to these very expensive artifacts that don't necessarily do anything immediate when they enter the battlefield. Do you have fears about that? Long term, or do you think like you just wait and get some instant value out of it and you're fine with it? Right. And also, I, I mean, D Spark is a, a, a specific case, right? But the fact that you have Emery that then mills yourself that allows you to cast this from the graveyard and you can play this on five. And if you don't have an Emery, you can reanimate Emery to actually protect this thing. It just works so well together. Whereas like with the Whip of Erebos decks, you had uh, Commune with the Gods, which was kind of mopey. But for the most part, it was just like, all right, I'm going to like mill myself a little bit and play my Siege Rhinos. And then if I draw a Whip, cool. You basically never got to like play Whip and activate it in the same turn either. Whereas this is way cheaper to do. Uh, it, it does cost life, which has been kind of a weird deck building constraint because I haven't found a lot of good ways to actually offset that. So it's, yeah, it's mostly just like, you know, use this three times and just try and bury them that way. But you could also do things like uh, have Cavalier of Thorns to find this, to just put it in the graveyard and also fill your graveyard and make it cost less. And then use Witch's Oven to sack your Cavalier to get some food, to then gain some life and put this thing on top of your deck, you know? So like, there's just like a lot of built in ways to actually make the engine work with a couple other cards that exist in the format, which is super nice. There is a lot of really beautiful interconnectivity between various trends in this set. This is a really nice example of a bunch of cards that fit really well together. Another piece of that that I've really been into is just how well the adventure cards slot with these reanimation strategies. I've mostly yeah. been doing blood for bone stuff and I really, really like the interconnectedness of adventure creatures and blood for bones. Getting to rebuy those spells seems very meaningful. I think all of this can fit together. A lot of my early sketches were red, blue 
And if you read my article this week, you saw some of those. And I was looking to take advantage of Iron Crag feet uh, and power out some Dracoseths. I think that's maybe a little silly in the face of things like what you're doing here or just plain old Teferi, which I still expect to be a very big part of the format. The best reanimation payoff strikes me as the seven mana blue creature. Uh, what's, what's it called? The thing that's Agent of Treachery. Thank you, Agent of Treachery. That is just the best reanimation payoff for the most part, right? I think so. I mean, there are ways to do Dracoseth stuff that have a lot of the same cards where you try and bond or revival it or whatever. Right. Uh, and then there's, depending on how your deck is set up, there's like Andre's Forerunners and Villas Broker of Blood. And there, there's like a lot of big things, but for the most part, if you're trying to reanimate things that are both powerful and castable, I think Agent of Treachery is the best one by far. Yeah, that's been my spot. I, I'm interested in this archetype. I can't wait to see how this one shakes out. I hope this is good enough to hold pace with what's going on in the format. Yeah, and one, one of the things that I mentioned in my article is that these decks basically could not exist without the adventure creatures because... They are creatures in the graveyard that make this cost less. They give you mm-hmm. more things to reanimate, but also they allow you to play enough interaction. Whereas before, if you had to play like Doom Blades and Heroes Downfalls and stuff, it's just like you this just deck miss. wouldn't really work. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So all of this stuff really comes together. And I, I assume that it was on purpose, but regardless, it's like it doesn't it doesn't feel heavy handed. You know, it just feels very elegant and beautiful. And, and I love that. Right. You feel smart when you put it together. And it's like yes. every every one of us is putting it together. So we're not smart. We're not special. But you still feel that way. It's like, oh, this fits together in a really nice way. And that's been one of the things that has had me really excited about Eldraine thus far. And you've also given me a nice segue to my number eight card. So I will take it here. It's Brazen Borrower. You already read this card. This is our Flash Fairy friend with Petty Theft, the bounce spell attached to it. Again, all of these adventure creatures are underrated right now. And the flexibility of having this spell tacked onto a creature with flash means that you just have so many options available to you at so many points in the turn. And even when you're not trying to pressure your opponent's life total, you need to be able to answer planeswalkers. And that's one of the things that Brazen Borrower does extremely well, being able to come down as a 3-1 flying flash threat at the end of an opponent's turn after you've already cast a meaningful spell. You don't have to do it right away. Like if your goal is not to pressure your opponent, you just leave Brazen Borrower sitting out on the sidelines. When you're ready to pressure a planeswalker, to pressure that Teferi that would otherwise blunt your game plan, you can bring back Borrower and start getting things done. Obviously, there's some timing issues there i get it but yeah it's it, it is awkward against teferi right but on the whole you'll find opportunities to get windows for your brazen borrower and i think that's really really important and there's a lot being said about this card being a mythic and how everyone's convinced it did something else previously and had to be changed at the last second that's the conspiracy theory i've been hearing that's fine. Maybe that's true. I'm not discrediting that. But I also hear almost no one saying the possibility of putting Flash on an adventure creature is really, really powerful. And particularly here, all this stuff is really powerful mashed together. So you read this and on its face, it may not be that exciting and seem that mythic and flashy. But I think the way this card plays is going to surprise a lot of people. And yeah. it's going to be a lot better than you expect. No, I, I think so too. I, th- I think you start thinking about various game states. and. Yes. How just like, you know, turn two, you don't have anything to do with your mana, really. They play a thing. You get to disperse it basically for free 
because you're just going to cast this on turn three anyway. Mm-hmm. And then in the mid game, you have like disperse plus flash threat. It's just like you have some of the sickest tempo turns. Yeah. You know, it's it's riffling Cloudskate with flash, right? It's that's a great way to look at it. And that was a, a powerful constructed level magic card for sure. Right. And, you know, obviously the suspend stuff and you could blink it and whatever, but like even Venser Shaper Savant and again, different bounces, spells, whatever. But like this is a relevant body. Like three yeah. power three, flyer. Three is, one's big. It's big. It, It'll end the it game quickly. It is big. Yeah. And I, I think that this card is going to be very good and it's going to show up in a lot of places, even just with Cauldron of Eternity stuff, where it is a bonus that it's a creature while also giving you some amount of interaction, you know? What do you think about the the high-flying stuff? In terms of it as a mechanic or just it being on this card? I mean, this card is way too good if you can just snipe a ground creature with it. I, I think it's absolutely, like, incredible as a defensive tool at that point. So it needs to have high-flying or it really blunts aggressive decks probably too hard. So thing that I also put in my article this week that I want to say here on the podcast so that it gets out to as many people as possible is that back in the day, there was this joke about Nazumi cutthroat. Do you remember this? No, I do not. Okay. So Nazumi cutthroat is a champions of Kamigawa card. It's a two mana, two one with fear and it can't block. So it encouraged you to play correctly. Yes. Yes. It's the exact same thing with this card. I swear. The high-flying text is not downside. It is helpful game advice. Always always be attacking. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I do think if you added that additional piece of flexibility, look, it's always good to have more options than less options. And I agree with you. A lot of the times you do want to go on the offensive with this card. But getting a block out of it would have been very, very powerful as well. I agree. I mean, it, it like especially for like the top-tier caliber of players, right? Yes. Having more options, certainly always a good thing. But for some people, it's like, oh, you know, maybe I should actually be like trading here or whatever. And it's like, well, you're play- you're already playing Disperse on a 3-1 Flash Flyer. Clearly, you should be putting this in some sort of tempo-oriented deck, right? And in that case, what should you be doing? You shouldn't be blocking. You should be trying to actually attack their Planeswalkers, attack them, find some way to actually close out the game. And I do just think that this is upside text for like teaching people, basically. That's a really good point. I want to find ways to maybe play this in more aggressive slants with something like Rankle. Maybe there's combinations. I talked a lot about adventure cards and Blood for Bones. Uh, Rankle plays well with that card as well. So maybe there's a blue-black Blood for Bones setup that is also quite good leveraging those cards. Brian? Yes? This card can't block... It should be attacking. You should also not be sacking it to Blood for Bones. (laughs) You don't have to sacrifice this card. You can sacrifice other cards in your adventure setup, and we can rebuy this card. Look, it's nice to play one way, but sometimes you need more diverse options, and Brazen Borrower is going to give you all those options. That is certainly true. I'm just saying, always be attacking. Yes. All right, my number seven. Do it. Vantress Gargoyle. One U that is two total mana... For a 5-4 flyer, artifact creature gargoyle has some downside, but I don't really believe that. Some downside. Can't attack unless defending player has seven or more cards in their graveyard. Can't block unless you have four or more cards in hand. And tap, each player puts the top card of their library into their graveyard. This card is busted. It is straight busted. 
in the early turns, you're going to have a reasonably full hand. This is going to be a blocker. You also get to mill both players, which will allow this to attack eventually, but hopefully you're also doing graveyard stuff. If you have cards like Drown in the Lock, even better. And then this just kills people super quickly on the cheap. Maybe this is going in the Brazen Borrower deck. But anyway, we talked a lot about how things were three years ago and how we would have been excited about things like Realm Cloak Giant. If we go back 10 years and this card gets previewed, everyone's heads collectively explode and everyone goes absolutely insane about this card. Yeah, magic's dying. Yes. Now, basically, nobody says anything. And this card flies pretty much under the radar. And that's because we spent a lot of time getting burned by these conditional big creatures that have you jump through some hoops. And this card is all about its conditions and how reliably you're able to meet both the requirement to block and the requirement to attack. There's plenty of support on both ends to make both ends work. I was uncomfortable having this in my top 10 because I don't think I can accurately assess how much of a hindrance these conditions are until I've played with this card. But I have no objection to you including it. I think just on its face, uh, it's got the type of stats that get me very excited. I mentioned how some decks are going to be in the market for a 1-4 flyer. Imagine how they feel about a 5-4 flyer. Yeah. Yeah, Getting that blocker early is a big deal for a lot of decks. And as you move to the mid game and you have your closing win condition already on the battlefield that you played six turns ago, that feels pretty good. And you just wrap up the game nice and quickly. Still sketching out decks with this card, but I like it. I'm into it. uh, And I'm excited to see what it does. So it's an artifact creature. So it works with Emery. Mm -hmm. Presumably with this milling you and you playing Emery, you're going to be able to do some crazy stuff with your graveyard, like maybe mill into a Cauldron of Eternity and then cast that with Emery. Otherwise, you're just like milling over more Gargoyles, maybe casting those with Emery. And the the Gargoyle enables itself. It just takes like a little bit of time, and you're, it's not like your opponent's not doing anything. Like they're casting spells, you're trading off creatures, whatever. Like their graveyard is going to, get full at some point, and then you just get to turn the game around super quickly. I'll tell you, mushing all these blue-black rares and mythic rares together, just shuffling them up, basically, and saying, here's my deck, seems very promising to me right now. These cards are very, very powerful. They all play very well together. Blue-black Throne of Eldraine rares might be my first archetype I'm dusting off when it comes to week one. Dude, I I sent you one on Facebook. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it is is Murderous Rider... Borrower, Gargoyle, Emery, Cauldron, like some thought erasures. Cool. What else do you need, you know? Wrinkle. Get some wrinkles in there. We'll oh, cover all man. the mythics. No. We'll cover it all. I, I think you're sleeping on that card to some extent. We'll get to that more later. I have more to say about Wrinkle. But, I, I uh, like Wrinkle. But uh, also, uh, Emery is kind of here pigeonholed in with Vantress Gargoyle because I think they're both going to be in the same decks. Yeah. No, I think that's pretty much going to be true. They feed very well into each other. All right, you're number seven. Let's go. Uh, Bone Crusher Giant. You mentioned it previously. It is our uh, one colorless, one red instant adventure. Damage can't be prevented this turn. Stomp deals two damage to any target. That's kind of neat in a world where there are a bunch of Cerulean Drakes floating around. Let's not forget about that. But also, whenever Bone Crusher Giant becomes the target of a spell, Bone Crusher Giant deals two damage to that spell's controller. It's a 4-3 three for three. 
this card does a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. And you mentioned like, oh, people will play properly around it at some point, not be deploying their two toughness threats and forcing you not to get value out of the Bone Crusher Giant. That's going to take a while. Well, also great. Don't do anything on your turn two. I'll stomp you in the face and then I'll play my Bone Crusher Giant. And now you're on the back foot anyway. Like there's basically no win situations against Bone Crusher Giant. It is such an efficient card. And again, I, I will say this over and over and over every time we talk about an adventure creature as we do our Throne of Eldraine stuff. You're not properly evaluating these cards yet. They're better than you think they are. I, pr- I promise all of these adventure cards are absolute home runs, very powerful stuff. And I think having an answer to the Cerulean Drake problem is a big deal. And that's something that red decks have struggled with lately. So I've built some very aggressive cavalcade red decks. And I really struggled whether you're just supposed to play Bone Crusher Giant anyway, even if it doesn't quite fit the mold. I think this card just might be good enough that if you have red in your deck, you're supposed to be playing. It's so versatile, can do so many things for you, both a threat and an answer. This seems like a slam dunk to me. Yo, you could also build red-white giant tribal with your destroy all non-giant creatures. And just sure, one-sided them. wrath. Yeah, I like it. Now now we're talking 10 years ago, Magic, 100%. Yeah, yeah just red-white medium garbage. Right, exactly, up my aisle. Uh, I don't have too much more to say about this card, though. I, I just think it's very good. Again, facially, yeah. very good. It is very good. All right, my number six is Oko, Thief of Crowns. One UG Planeswalker. I'm scrolling, which is why I'm talking slowly. Uh, four starting loyalty. Plus two create a food. Plus one target artifact or creature loses all abilities and becomes a green elk creature with base power and toughness 3-3. Three, three. I guess this is the thing that kind of hinders the legendary artifacts, but whatever. Uh, mm. Minus five exchange control of target artifact or creature you control with target creature and opponent controls of power three or less. This this card just has a bunch of abilities. It does a bunch of stuff. I am enamored with the the food engine between this and the giant troll that comes back and the fight wolf and the goose that makes mana. Uh, maybe the oven trail of crumbs stuff like that. Like there's a lot of good stuff going on. I'm not sure exactly what I'm supposed to be doing with it. Kind of have like an idea. Overall, I think this this package is very nice. And in the meantime, like Oko just by itself is completely reasonable. That's exactly where I wanted to go with my end of the discussion. I think all the food stuff is cool and I'm not entirely sold on it being constructed viable right now, but I want to explore it. That doesn't matter though, because Oko on its face, again, another extremely powerful card. Doing coverage this weekend with Craig Kremples, he's super high on this card, super high. And he kind of sold me on it. It's just, as an opponent facing down Oko, especially if the Oko comes down ahead of curve. Now, granted, you need a goose to do that, but we have pretty reliable goose access in a lot of situations. We'll talk more about that as we move through my top 10. If your opponent plays this on turn two, what are you supposed to realistically do? Like if you're on the draw and your opponent played this on turn two, What's your response plan? They're going to make a food. You just let them go ahead and swap that food for your creature you're going to play on your turn two or your turn three. That makes no sense to me. I don't know how you overcome that. And I I mean, if your creature's big enough, then okay, you have a reasonable plan against Oko. But if you're just sitting there doing nothing and you let Oko sit on the uh, other side of the battlefield, then they're just going to make three threes every other turn. And that's equally as damning from a three mana planeswalker that still contains the threat of just minus five, take your best thing at any point in time. So there's there's really no strong counterplay to Oko in the early game. 
Now, if it has a weakness, I don't know that it scales all that well as you move into the late game, but your point to the plus one effectively dealing with the legendary artifacts, that's a really good pickup and not something I had actually thought about before. So that could become a very important part of the format. I'm also very high on Oko. I'll give a spoiler. I, I have it number five, so we're not too far off from my okay. placing on Oko, but I, I think this card is very, very strong. All right, uh, hit me with your number six. It's Rankle, and we've talked about Rankle, Master of Pranks, a bunch. I will read it for you. Two colorless, black, black, legendary creature, fairy rogue, flying haste. Whenever Rankle, Master of Pranks, deals combat damage to a player, choose any number. Each player discards a card. Each player loses one life and draws a card. Each player sacrifices a creature. The more decks I build, the more I find Rankle to be glue that holds them together, especially in the space of leveraging adventure creatures and reanimator type stuff you are pretty happy burning some sacrificial fodder uh one of the cards i actually like quite a bit is the death touch adventure creature for 1b that also two colorless one black draw card i think that's just good value and it's pretty easy to trade that for a rankle sacrifice the self discard outlet matters a bunch when you're trying to fuel your graveyard as you are in some spots with your graveyard decks as i am with my reanimation decks so i appreciate having access to that while it restricts your opponent's resources and then it's just an engine to draw cards in the late game pressure your opponent's life total popping them for four swing basically is very meaningful on your three three flyer so i think rankle just is glue for so many archetypes and it's not the most slam dunk facially powerful card, but it interacts with all the themes in this set very well. And my numbers start low where I'm like, oh, I think I want a rankle here. And then I think more about it and I think more about it. And the numbers keep increasing to sometimes now I have three or four copies of rankle in a lot of my decks. And it just seems to make everything based around Throne of Eldraine a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. Uh- Three copies does not seem outrageous to me. And then it's kind of got the Hazaret text where it's like, why not just play four? Because you can just, just discard. pitch it. Yeah, just pitch it to the other one. Like, who cares? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do like this card a lot. I've kind of struggled with building decks that I think it would actually be good in. But, I mean, when when this card got previewed, I was I was very high on this card. And that really hasn't changed. Can you explain why you don't like it in your graveyard setups? Do you think it's just too far afield of the engine and unnecessary and extraneous to your end goal? Or is it not up Basi- the power level for that archetype? No, it's it's basically the first part. Uh, I, I think it's of reasonable power level, but for four mana, you could probably be doing a, a lot better of a job at setting up your actual end game. Whereas... Okay. I don't know. It's just weird for, for four mana. You just like start attacking them and like doing all of these weird things when I could just play like a wall of lost thoughts or Lazav or something that is cheaper and actually helps me set up the end game. I don't know. It feels like the modality of this card is the biggest draw. And one of the things, like you mentioned your deck, it's ostensibly a combo deck. You're building towards this one end game, but along the way, because of the adventure creatures, uh, you you do have some modality. You have the ability to interact with your opponent. You have the ability to set up other game plans, maybe even just win a fair game of magic where you're pressuring their life total. And there is no more modal card than Rankle. It's a charm yes. on its face with three yeah. different options. Uh, and I think it slots really well into all those goals you presently have. So, Yeah, it's it's possible that I should cut the walls and some of the more just like combo focused stuff and actually just be like this tempo deck that also has an insane end game, but that's just less fun. There's a lot of value in just playing good cards sometimes, especially early on in the format. 
we'll have to see where this fits on that scale and whether it's something you build around or if it's just something that every deck wants some rankles. Thing, thing I really like with Rankle in some sort of mono black or close to mono black aggro deck is the fact that you can just like Liliana the Veil, uh, get yourself down to Hellbent and then refuel with Castle Lockwin. Yeah, that's cool. All right, so you're six. We talked about, or no, you're five. So we should do my five. Your five is what we're up to. Okay, so my five is Once Upon a Time, and I know that this is on your list somewhere. Oh, yeah, we're getting there. Okay, so 1G Instant. If this spell is the first spell you've cast this game, you may cast it without paying its mana cost. Look at the top five cards of your library. You may reveal a creature or land card from among them, put it into your hand, put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. I've kind of run into snags with including this card in my deck because I'll have like a bunch of Planeswalkers or some legendary artifacts, but certainly the adventure creatures help a ton in making sure that this is actually very, very good. And it's also noteworthy that you don't have to just like play this on turn one. If you're not going to play a spell, otherwise you can just wait until turn two, get a little bit of extra information. You could also just draw this on turn two when you were normally going to play like a grizzly bear or whatever, you get to cast this first. So uh, this card is quite good. It increases a lot of consistent uh, consistency means that you're going to have turn one goose a lot more than you would normally. And it's just relatively free. A lot of these green decks are also just making a lot of mana in the late game between like Nissa and some other stuff, very low opportunity costs and just very, very good. I love that you mentioned opportunity costs because that is a a big theme, I think, in this set and the evaluation of cards in this set. Uh, I have this just a little higher. We'll reveal it when we get there. But I I think we've talked about this. It's it's just free. It's fixing a lot of things for decks that have very varying power levels based on their potential openers. You mentioned the goose, of course, but it just seems like every green deck benefits from once upon a time. Your numbers of creatures and lands don't even have to be that high to play this card. Like if you're pushing 30, you're probably safe and there's not many decks that aren't pushing 30. So uh, granted your selection won't be as dramatic, but you'll hit. It's very rare that you miss around those numbers. So yeah, I I wouldn't want to necessarily include this in my deck just to hit. I would want it to like fill up my curve or find my one drop or, find this specific adventure creature or fix my mana or whatever. Right. Like that is what I'm looking for with this. I just don't, I don't want it to just like cycle. Sure. Sure. But I, I, the way you're building most of these green decks, like anything short of the most aggressive green deck is going to build towards that eventuality where you have things you're needing to find things that are higher value uh, than other pieces you may be looking at. And yeah, it just keeps making the cut. So uh, yeah, super high on this card. And if we were talking modern, probably also one of yeah, the top good, cards, if not the top good card. Good God. Good yeah. God. Very explosive. Have you come come around to this card in Tron yet? I don't know. I, I like honestly no. don't okay. know. Yeah, I, I just think like, who made a very... Uh, I think it was your, your description of it, where like you can just... You're mulliganing a lot of the time anyway, and at that point, you just stash your additional copies. I think that's a very good argument for playing many, many copies of this in Tron and it being a difference maker. You probably end up with slightly less effective sevens and dramatically more effective six, fives, and fours. And the fact that, I don't know, 80% of games 
maybe even higher, 85% of games, you're mulliganing when you play Tron. If you're playing it correctly, means that I'm starting to get on board with the idea of just stashing your additional copies. Four might feel like you're still going to get times where you're just jammed up, and I'm a little scared of that. But uh, three seems seems pretty clear when you're mulliganing that much. Yeah. All right, so we, we've been jumping around. That was my number five. Your number five was Oko? Correct. So we can do my number four? We can. Murderous Rida. Uh, this is 1BB, 2-3, lifelink, zombie knight. When this dies, put it on the bottom of its owner's library. And, of course, the adventure, swift end, 1BB, instant, destroy target creature, planeswalker, you lose two life. If this were just a spell, we'd probably be playing it. We'd probably be fine with it. Uh, but but instead, you get this body kind of for free. And it's not, not the world's most impressive body, but it is a knight. It has lifelink, so you, you maybe get to recoup some of the life you lost. And yeah, if you, you know, do some things like cast once upon a time and you find this card, you get to get a hero's downfall off it because it's a creature. And there's just a lot of things like that that are kind of small, but sort of add up. And this is just so much better than hero's downfall with you lose two life attached to it. Yeah, this this card is something. And I've made the point many times, adventures are better than you think they are. Uh, this one is just incredible. You get all the usual filtering mechanisms so you can find this card more reliably, like you mentioned. And it's Teferi-proof. That's a huge deal, too. Like, your opponent can't bounce this with their Teferi. And that's the play pattern you get in over and over across standard for months and months is like, oh, I have one threat. Opponent has a working Teferi, and... I, I need to find two threats, otherwise I have basically nothing. And they'll find they'll get an extra card, they'll find time to deal with my one threat, and then the game spirals out of control. Murderous Rider makes that much more difficult for your opponent, while not only being a facial answer to Teferi, but it answers it on the backside too in some ways. So I'm super high on this card. I It's coming later, we'll get to it, but uh, no objection to it sitting here in your number four spot. Yeah, it's going to be huge. Uh, if you're playing a reasonable amount of black mana, you're going to have some amount of copies of this card in your deck, and you're probably going to be doing some crazier stuff with it than just casting it for the adventure. You know, you're going to be once upon a timing into it or self milling into it and rebuying it or whatever. Yeah, that's the dream. I, more ways to get this into your graveyard when you don't have to have it die from the battlefield. Uh, and by the way, smart inclusion on that when this dies, put it on the bottom because, oh, yeah, oh, my God, would this card have been absolutely absurd in the absence of that clause. But when you get to rebuy it from your graveyard with something like Blood for Bones, the power level is just completely off the charts. And uh, the more setups we find for that, again, that's something I've appreciated Rankle for. Just another way to put this into the yard. I, I, I could talk about this card forever. I think it is undoubtedly a staple of standard going forward. Word, you're number four. This is one I'm worried that maybe isn't going to make your list. And, and I'm, getting, I'm getting a little scared as we get to the end. But maybe you're even higher on it than I am. Let's see. I'm talking about Torbran Thane of Redfall. One colorless, three red mana, legendary creature, dwarf, noble. If a red source you control would deal damage to an opponent or a permanent an opponent controls, it deals that much damage plus two instead. This is an unfathomable amount of damage to place on a single card. This makes aggressive red decks so, so, so much better 
like the cavalcade of calamity stuff that was floating around previously. I think those decks are just unbelievably explosive at this point. They pump out damage at an absurd rate. This is obviously competing in the same space as something like Experimental Frenzy, but this isn't for the same type of red deck. This isn't about a red deck that wants to play a bunch of turns and will find ways out of any situation. This is for a red deck that kills you over and over and over on turn four, maybe turn five. Uh, There's so many good turn four kills in these red decks based around Torbrand, and they aren't at all unrealistic. Sometimes they just require three cards, four cards, uh, and are very, very clean. This card seems pushed to me. I am excited about what this does for red decks going forward. I am picking up what you're putting down. This card is nowhere near my top 10. That's crazy to me. I, I just think it's such, such a damage boost for all of these archetypes. Things like the 1-1 red elemental now dealing an absurd amount of damage. Any kind of Tybalt's devils and things like that pushing forth tons of damage. It just scales so dramatically that as soon as it's on the battlefield, every single threat in your deck is damning. And it's not like your opponent can just save removal for this card. You have to kill everything else that's going on. Right. Uh, the body's at a place where I think it fades a lot of commonly played removal. Obviously, we're not talking uh, like fading cast down, but uh, you mentioned the, is it glass coffin or glass case? What's it called? Glass casket. Glass casket, thank you. This being just a point bigger than that can deal with will come into play. It having an immediate impact on the battlefield and not needing to stick around to turn post to ferry is a big deal. So I'm just a believer in how much damage you're producing from a single card with Torbren. Yeah, I could could be wrong about this. It it feels like maybe there's too much setup necessary uh, and I would rather be doing frenzy things, but maybe... Frenzy just doesn't really have the setup. Like you, you don't have a lightning strike. Your one drops are pretty weak to the point where uh, playing cavalcade instead makes a lot of sense to me. And obviously this card works really well with that card. So I get it. I could, I could be wrong about this one. Well, let's see how it plays out. One of the first lists I have put together is my cavalcade red deck. Certainly like as soon as I hop on, hop on the ladder, that seems like a nice thing to t- check if people are being honest. Like, just play this Cavalcade Red deck. Either you have appropriate removal in your deck or you're going to get absolutely dumpstered. If your first removal spell is Murderous Rider, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you're keeping pace with that Red deck. Game over. All right, my number three? Do it. My number three is a cycle. I'm cheating. The the rare lands, the castles, all of them. Okay. Tell us why you're high in the castles. Uh, again, I... You, you said that you were happy that I said opportunity cost, and mm-hmm. uh, that is a term that I used a lot in my article this week talking about like the adventure creatures and also these castles where they eat to be tapped unless you control a single island, swamp, whatever, and the Ravnica duels count. You have uh, fetch land in Fable Passage to make that easier too, and then they, you just have these abilities that when you run out of mana or when you run out of things to do, you just have like these absurd mana sinks. So the white one makes a token, the blue one scries to the black one. You draw a card, lose life equal to the number of cards in your hand. The red one gives your team plus one plus O, which seems absurd in your cavalry deck. Four copies. And then the green one is just a free rampant growth, which is also just completely absurd to me. I'm, I'm tipping my hand a little bit here by telling you my opinion on these castles every freaking one is insane absolutely insane 
jaw-droppingly good. I could not believe the text that was included on these cards. Every single one of them is absolutely incredibly impactful. And it's all about opportunity costs. You give up almost nothing to include these in your deck when you're doing something like playing mono red cavalcade. Like I said, four copies. And I'm never going to activate two in one turn, but I always want one. And it costs me almost nothing to include them in my otherwise 17 mountain red deck. So I'm very happy to suit up with them in like two color decks. I often have somewhere between two to four copies of various castles. Yep. I just don't know why you would pass on these cards. They do so, so much for every archetype. Uh, you mentioned the green one. That's a modern slam dunk. Any format Obviously. with Primeval Titan, there'll be one in Amulet. At least one in Amulet. There'll be one in all the Valakut decks. It's it's just so good. And I think one is a conservative estimate. You probably should be building your duck deck in such a fashion that you can play more than one copy. I don't understand being disappointed about any of these. All of these abilities are huge. The scry on the blue one, very, very impactful as you get to a late game stalemate situation when you're playing a control archetype. You're going to be more than happy to put your mana into that. These are just incredible cards and the most jaw-dropping cards, I think, in the set as far as standard play goes, as far as their ability to define the metagame. The fact that all of these decks are going to carry some amount of meaningful utility on their lands really changes what you have to account for in all games going forward. And I'm excited to play with these cards. I think a lot of them are going to be fun. Yeah, me too. I think just a lot of them are like, oh, you only get a 1-1 or you only scry 2. It's like, you know when you're in a top deck war, how busted paying 5 mana to scry 2 is? It's huge. It's tremendous. You You pull ahead immediately. Yeah, I I don't know what people are missing in in this case. It's it's a game-changing ability. And then for the green one, it's like, oh, six mana. What am I going to do with six mana? There's Hydroid Crisis. Sure. You get a free Rampart Growth off your Hydroid Crisis, which a lot of the time is just an extra card, an extra life. Like, how is that not just completely absurd? I, I don't know if people are overestimating the downside of having to have one land, but it's not even like you have to have a basic. You can have a dual land and still get these to come into play untapped. So I, I think maybe there's been too much made of the people who are low on these cards. And I think it was a lot of the same people who were the no dual land haters, the people who were really upset there wasn't a dual land included. And they saw these castles instead and they were like, stupid castles, what am I supposed to do with these? You're supposed to redefine what standard's about with these. Right. These are incredible magic cards. And uh, this is the thing I have to unpack more than anything else. I have to understand how these influence games of standard to be successful in deck building going forward. I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> these are all just very good, and we're going to have to live with them for two years. Yeah, so they'll be everywhere. Yeah, get used to it. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think you need four copies of each or anything, but, like, if you pick up, you know, two copies of each, I think you're you're pretty solid for the next couple of years. Sounds good. All right, you're number three. Once upon a time, we talked about it. In okay. fact, we've talked, about, we've talked about all my cards now, so we can, we can move through my end quickly. Yeah, so your castles are number one. Mm-hmm. They are the number one card for me in the set. What is what is your number two? Murderous Rider. Okay, tight. Uh, my number one is Fabled Passage. Just sure, because that makes sense. I get it's, it. It's going to be everywhere. You know, uh, I I don't think that it's like busted or anything, but it is format defining. It really is. Just the the fact that you can play three color decks and 
you know, your two color decks are reasonable and everything, but it's just going to be huge. It's going to be everywhere. Uh, so my number two is the interesting one, I suppose. Yeah, this is the one I'm missing, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. So this is the Great Henge, 7GG Legendary Artifact. This spell costs X less to cast, where X is the greatest power among creatures you control. Tap, add GG, you gain two life. Whenever a non-token creature enters the battlefield under your control, put a plus one, plus one counter on it and draw a card. Life gain, engine, your stuff is bigger, mana boost. Uh, you already have uh, Castle Garenbrig to power out a crisis, which is then going to reduce the cost of this to a reasonable amount. And then after that, you're just going off and you're gaining a bunch of life and you're just not going to die. This is this is like the new tireless tracker, courser of crew fix type of thing. Like this is the super annoying green engine that everyone is going to hate. How much cost reduction do you need before this is reasonable? Uh, I think if this costs four or five mana, that is completely fine. Like this, this is, is it, not. Is it better than Nissa in that spot? You play both. Like Nissa helps you cast this, right? But like sure. the, the the fact that you get to play this and then just immediately gain two life, it's you know it it's not nothing. It does sort of affect the board, and then also if you have something like a two drop to play off the mana, then sure, nice follow up. Yeah. And, there's Gilded Goose for for one-mana creatures, but for the most part, you're going to be playing Leafkin Druid alongside Risen Reef and maybe Cavalier of Thorns or uh, Paradise Druid or whatever. So it's like, you know, you're getting a 3-2 or a 1-4, you're gaining two life, you're drawing a card. Like, you are very likely going to be able to do something else with this card, and then you untap with it, the game is over. I'm trying to figure out exactly why I'm not as high on this card as you are, I think that the type of end game you were talking about is valid and is something you can play towards. I wonder if it gets outscaled by other existing end games. Like, I, I think this may have that same problem as Flood of Tears, where it does something super impactful. It's just that there were more impactful things on the top end, and this ends up looking kind of quaint in the face of these other really explosive things you can do. And the one that comes to mind when you talk about like Risen Reef, Leafkin Elemental type setups, we'll just play Omnath. And I'm sure you've seen Omnath absolutely go off and draw, you know, six, seven cards in a turn and buff your entire team. And I think in some ways that goes off even harder than this card has the potential to. Now this card floats more towards the middle effectively. I'll give you that, the life gain ability uh, certain to make some inroads. I don't know. I'm just having a hard time envisioning what a deck built around this card does better than decks built around the other late game engines. And maybe even like I would include Field of the Dead in that kind of sit up, setup. And that may have changed in the absence of Scapeshift now that it can't just go huge in a single spot. But is this better than your Golos Chains at the end of the game? You don't want to be a slightly smaller mid-range deck, and this effect feels slightly smaller than other things we can do. And I get that that's outrageous given how immediate and how hard the impact is, but we've got some pushed engines right now, and I have some concerns that maybe this is just a step behind. So when you're talking about Nexus of Fate, yes, obviously this is exactly the type of thing that you don't want to be doing. Field of the Dead, I think this can outpace pretty reasonably unless, you know, they have three or four fields on the battlefield or you allow their Golos to live or whatever. But 
these decks are already, you know, like Bant, any sort of Simic, are already doing like Nissa crisis things. And I think that this just fits in the deck already. It allows you to go so much harder, so much faster. And then if you want to talk about like Yorvo decks, just, you know, some sort of like mono green beatdown thing, like this is way better for them than, than Galta is, you know? Like it just allows you to actually have this engine in, in a beatdown deck. And the same is true for things like Gruul. But it, as far as Omnath is concerned, you, you can play both, man. Yeah. No, you can. That's true. Uh, I have I have a sense that maybe I'm being a bit of a naysayer on this card. And uh, this is also one that, I mean, it's so weird just given how little time we've had access to these cards. This could have been a card that showed up like while I was traveling or something. And that meant my deck building focus got pulled somewhere else before I could spend any time with it. So that's not super fair, right? Like I, it, it's my job to give everything a shot, but for whatever reason, this is a card I haven't focused on yet. I'm interested to see if I'm just dramatically undervaluing it at this stage. Yeah, I mean, I so the, things like Torbrand, right? Where like you're super high on it, I'm not. This is basically the same thing. Where it's like I see this card and get excited. You see Torbrand and get excited, and it just so happened that I was already building like Cauldron of Eternity decks and a lot of the same stuff that works with Cauldron of Eternity also works with Great Hand just to the point where I've had decks with both of them in it. You mm-hmm. know, like Cavalier of Thorns plays really well with both, right? Very true. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's just kind of the rabbit hole I've been going down. And I think that Standard will likely be defined to some degree by what you can do with these legendary artifacts because they're, you know, some of the best engines possible. No, oh, very and powerful stuff. And standard for the most part is basically like who gets to keep going, who gets to keep doing their thing and like who runs out of gas and uh, both Cauldron and Great Henge just crush everyone else. And those things get to live now because Nexus is gone. Right. Nexus closed off a lot of space uh, as far as going big. Not much, not much you can do bigger than taking all the turns for the rest of the game. That's for sure. Yeah. What do you think about rotting Regisaur in the context of, this card, obviously, just nailing the maximum reduction right away. Also a discard outlet for things like Cauldron. Any yeah, overlap that's legit. There? That's legit. I haven't uh, really gone down, like I said, you know, questing beast type of stuff. I haven't gone down just like the straight beat down rabbit hole. But yeah, I mean, Registor into this, like there's there's no downside anymore, right? Because you're just flush with cards. Yeah. Uh, so I, I could totally see that. Yeah, that's that's where I would start. That was the first place my brain went when I saw this card. Maybe I'm just a simpleton, and I was like, oh, seven mana reduction, and found it immediately. But that was my starting point. I'm I'm interested to explore this card, and it wouldn't surprise me if I am just way too low on it. To the same extent, it wouldn't surprise me if you're way too low on Torbrand. These are just like super strong engines, and we have to suss them out. But I think the big takeaway is just like, how many cards are there to build around in this set, and how many exciting ideas are out there? Uh, yeah, it we'll, seems like a really cool time to do some brewing. We'll be we'll be busy for a while, I think. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess this is like a fine time to mention. I didn't clear this with you, but I'm just going to do it anyway. We're going to do a lot of video content with this set as soon as it becomes live. Uh, I know people have been following our YouTube page, and we did, in fact, crack a thousand subscribers. We Jerry. did. I, I got that email yesterday. Uh huh. So that means it's time to give away a deck box. We will handle that, and someone will be a lucky recipient of a fine, beautifully handmade arena decklist deck box. But more importantly, 
we're going to find cool stuff to do with this set and we're going to make a lot of deck techs. We'll do some, I'll do some streaming. I'll promise you that. I don't know if I can get Jerry on board, but I'll show up and we'll put these decks through their paces and uh, have a lot of cool videos over on our YouTube page for you to check out. Yeah, that's the plan at least. And if, if we don't release anything the day that Eldraine comes out on arena, please yell at us because we deserve it. Yeah, I, I don't see that happening. I, like, I am basically going to be ready at my desk to go as soon as you give me access to these cards. So uh, I, I have the decks. I, I built them all in Scryfall. Scryfall with a beautiful exporter. Put it right into my clipboard and buy a bunch of cards and get to work immediately. Start playing games. Yeah, I'm still doing everything on Notepad. I got to stop doing that. That's all Scryfall all the time for me now. This new deck builder is dope. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, when I was building decks and like writing this article, I was also flying, so I didn't have internet access. I mean, I could have purchased it, certainly, but. Yeah, are are you a purchase Wi-Fi person at this point? Like, I I did it for the first time pretty recently. I used to just tough it out and be like, oh, no Wi-Fi on the plane. And then once I purchased it once, I'm just like, I'm doing this forever and I'm trapped now. It it depends what else I have to do. Like, if I can just sit down and build decks and, like, I know all the cards and everything, or if I have, like, a sideboarding guide that I need to write out, then I can just do that without access to the internet. And it actually helps me, right? Because I'm trapped. Yeah, I'm trapped. I can't do anything. Like, I I just have to sit there and focus on work. Otherwise, I'll be bored out of my mind. So uh, not buying the Wi-Fi actually helps a lot. But I've, I've certainly purchased it, like, over 10 times in the last year or two. Sure. Um, yeah, uh, I think that's going to do it for our top 10. And like we said, there are still a few cards left to trickle in. So maybe we'll get a little bit of spice and uh, you'll be able to catch up on what we think of the cards in the set and the decks on the YouTube page. And if nothing else, uh, we'll probably talk about it on the cast next week. But uh, every week we do pick a question from the fine folks in our discord and the the question that we select gets a, a fancy arena deckless pin you can't get it anywhere else except through this thing and do we have a question this week of course we do the question this week comes from sword of light and kyle one of my favorite swords to go find with stoneforge mystic <laughs> sword of light and kyle wants to know what's your favorite disney movie or fairy tale a very well-timed question sort of light and kyle jerry you go first for me fairy tale i don't know i just i didn't have a lot of experience like reading classics or having classics read to me but i definitely grew up on disney movies and i don't think it's fair for me to go through and just be like oh you know this is the one that is uh, objectively the best or whatever. It is probably just like whichever one I've watched the most. Do you think that that is a fair way to answer that? Uh, you you get to answer it however you would like. If it's your favorite, it doesn't, you don't have to say it's the best. It's just your favorite. This is completely subjective. So you have total control over what your answer is here and what whatever grounds you want to give it on, that's fine. Okay, so we were very poor growing up did not have a lot of things to do. So we ended up rewatching movies a lot. And honestly, I don't even remember what exactly happens in the movie. So this, this could be really bad, you know, like I, I honestly don't have any idea, but I know that I watched like the Fox and the Hound just a lot. 
And for nostalgia purposes, it's like, okay, you know, that's, that's really good. This is a thing that kept me occupied throughout my entire childhood. And then, you know, later it was maybe stuff like Aladdin and Lion King. But like at that point I was kind of growing out of it and, you know, watching X-Men or whatever. So did not watch those as much, but I think that that is probably one of the ones that I've watched the most, even though I don't remember anything that happened. I have a slam dunk answer because it's one that I still watch basically anytime I have the capability to do so. Ooh, I think I know this. Go ahead. I'll, I'll let you put forth a guess. Is it a nightmare before Christmas? Does that count? It is. It is a nightmare before Christmas. It absolutely is something about the vibe and honestly the music more than anything else. I love the music in the nightmare before Christmas. I, just listen to the soundtrack sometimes and not to say I don't appreciate all the Disney soundtracks. Obviously all of them are basically fantastic, but that's the only one I just queue up solo and take a listen to. I don't know what it was about the movie. Just something about it hit me in the right way. I've always loved Halloween. Uh, My birthday falls right around Halloween. So obviously that was like the time of year where it felt like things started to get good for me. I'd have my birthday, then there would be Halloween, then Thanksgiving, then Christmas, all rapid fire. And, you know, being a kid, all those things are super important to you. So that is just the first thing that pops to mind. I, I think like Aladdin is probably very close. I've seen Aladdin an incredible number of times and feel pretty similarly about the soundtrack but I just don't feel the same level of emotional connection to the movie for whatever reason. And I know that's like somewhat outside the traditional Disney flair, right? I don't think people associate that as one of the big Disney properties, the way they do the animated movies, but that that's the one I got to go with. It's definitely a, a Disney property. And I know that authoritatively because it's definitely in kingdom hearts. So uh, <laughs> this has to be true. Yeah, uh, I I think Aladdin and Lion King was the era when they really started stepping their game up, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, And it's like they the music got a lot better. The stories got a lot better. And maybe Little Mermaid because Little Mermaid predates both those. And I think that deserves a lot of the same credit. I mean, those are all like within five years of each other, right? Right. It's it's like the the exact same era. And like Fox and the Hound, I think, predated that where it's just like, okay, this is a movie and whatever. But yeah, I, I think... Maybe I was just in kind of like the the wrong generation. You know, I was born like maybe five or 10 years too early or something to really actually enjoy the the golden age of all of that stuff. That's funny. I don't feel like it missed me at all. And I'm older than you. Like, I think that was just in the sweet spot for me to appreciate Aladdin, Lion King, all that stuff. It, it, all of them were slam dunks for me. Well, no, they were slam dunks for me too. But then I like age out of it like quickly after that you know okay that's what i'm saying i feel you so it didn't have the same like resonance with you where you went and watched it dozens of times right right well dozens maybe but like you know 50 (laughs) 50 100 no right uh that was that was like yeah fox and the hound lady in the tramp 101 dalmatians stuff like that sure all slam dunks for me but yeah like can you imagine being a kid now and growing up with like moana I'm sure Moana's fine. It's um, very good. I, I haven't seen it. I'll be honest with you. You should see it. You should see it, man. I I will do that because it fits my uh, requirements of being a cartoon. So I can, in fact, watch it. It, it, nice. it will be included on my list. But I feel like I feel like even kids presently reach back to those movies the same way like you reach back to Fox and the Hound. Like, I think that 
predates you by a few years. And I remember watching uh, Sword in the Stone a bunch, which certainly one of the older movies. And, you know, Cinderella and Snow White, all those movies are just, they last forever and ever. And that's one of the great things about them. And uh, I'm sure present day children are also still enjoying the same ones we did. I don't know about Nightmare Before Christmas. Maybe some parts of that actually are scary for a child. (laughs) And that skews a little bit older, but. I would assume so. Yeah. But like, uh, uh, what about Frozen? Did you see Frozen at least? Haven't haven't seen Frozen, no. Okay, dude, uh, come on. All right, so we will have a viewing party. Maybe when we head to PT Richmond, which you and I are going to, alongside a bunch of members of our Discord. We're going to be hanging out down there. You'll be playing the PT. I'm terrible, so don't have to worry about anything like that. I will play GPs, PTQs, and such. And maybe we can just schedule a big Disney watch along for the time we're there. Dude, I'm in. Uh, so the, the list is Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, Frozen, and Moana. And then we'll we'll each try and add some things to it. Sounds fantastic. And then maybe like add some anime to it or something. Always, always time for anime. Everyone knows that. Fun for the whole family. Right. That's game. Good luck.